Uh, this year has marked some uh, significant anniversaries. Back in August, we marked the 80th anniversary uh, of one of the pivotal moments in, in World War II, Operation Jubilee, or what was known as uh, the Raid on Dia. And like I said, we've been marking a, a lot of those uh, anniversaries in recent years, and we'll continue to over the next couple of years. It, it's harder to mark an anniversary when it comes to the Battle of the Atlantic. For all intents and purposes, the Battle of the Atlantic stretched more than five years uh, as the Germans attempted to uh, block, destroy, sabotage uh, all of the convoys that were coming across the Atlantic Ocean designed to bolster the fight against the Germans. Canada played an important role in that. Starting in 1935 and growing, or 1939 rather, and growing over the subsequent uh, five years. And it really became, I think, the birth of what was the modern Royal Canadian Navy. And it's the focus uh, of the latest book, I believe now his 20th, from military historian and author Ted Barris. His latest, it's called Battle of the Atlantic, Gauntlet to Victory. It's out now. In fact, Ted Barris will be speaking this weekend, Saturday afternoon, at the Bomber Command Museum of Canada in Nanton. Joining us on the line is the aforementioned Ted Barris. Ted, great to have you with us. Congrats on the book here. Welcome to the program. Well, thank you very much. I'm, I'm delighted to be with you and to be able to talk to this subject. You're pointing out how valuable these anniversaries are and how difficult it is to pin an anniversary on this 2,074-day-long battle. Right. So how do we, how do we sum up the, the Battle of the Atlantic, first of all? Well, it's, you know, um, when I started the project, this is sort of my pandemic book, the 20th. I started really uh, sitting down to write it in, in 2020, in, in, in March. And um, I, I immersed myself in the obvious combat between the wolf packs, the German U-boats, trying to wipe out, strangle the convoy lifeline between North America and Britain. But along that very early path through this book, I got a letter from a friend of mine who sent me a letter that her aunt had written home to Canada from Britain. And in that letter, dated September the 3rd, 1939, the very first day of the war, this Canadian expat living in, in England understands what they're facing in England, and that is blackouts. Uh, the Blitz, um, the potential of invasion by the Germans, but most definitely rationing of everything. Britain was always a maritime nation dependent on offshore trade to bring in everything from food to fuel. And this woman, Alex Masseter from Fenland Falls, Ontario, writes home and says, we realize now the blackout is coming, the shortages of fuel, and of course, tea and sugar, which of course were the most vital things to Brits. But the humor aside, it, it essentially put into focus for me what the point of the convoys was, and that was to deliver the, the food and fuel that the Britons would need to stay alive, and that ultimately what would give the Allies a launch pad one day to begin the invasion and restoration of freedom in Europe. So that's how critical winning at sea was. Nothing could have happened without winning this battle and saving the Brits from extinction because they had no uh, lifeline. Yeah, and it's interesting, and it's something you focus on in your storytelling, Ted, is those human stories. You know, the people that were affected by this situation, obviously a lot of stories of the people who were thrust into this, you know, those who fought in these battles. Why, why is it so important to, to include the, the human element in all of this? Because we get stuck, I think, um, on numbers and, you know, micro and macro stat statistics, you know. I mean, the fact that, you know, uh, 12,000 merchants 
sailors were involved, uh, you know, thousands of air crew. But for me, it comes down to the pilot of the bomb aimer and those air crews, uh, air, you know, like the bombers that were going out to sea to give the convoys air cover. It, it comes down to the guys bobbing around on those corvettes like corks on the ocean trying to keep life and limb together and defend the convoys. And, and probably most definitely comes down to the merchant sailors who got no credit, who essentially worked blind in this thing, unarmed, um, and then ultimately at the end of the war were not even given veteran status uh, for another 50 years. These are the human stories which, to me, make this story worth telling, remembering, and honoring. Right. So one of the stories, I mean, there was a number of setbacks, obviously, in the Battle of the Atlantic. One of them was in uh, September of 1940. Convoy HX-72 was uh, on its way from Halifax, I believe, uh, to Liverpool. uh, And the Germans found it. The Germans targeted it. Yeah, and, and, and I give that give to the reader the story in the second chapter after I've established a few opening remarks, including the, the letter that Alex Masseter, this woman, wrote home giving the, the rationale for the convoys. I take the reader into, in, literally, inside the convoy aboard one of the tankers, which was sunk in that convoy. It was decimated. The only way I'm able to do that, I was able to find tapes going back 40 years which a Canada Parks historian had gathered doing interviews with survivors of uh, men from the Frederick S. Fales, a tanker that was en route between North America and Liverpool, and which was sunk. And to have six men's stories recorded that long ago, all of them who survived that sinking, and essentially being able to give me six different vantage points of the same action, suddenly thrusts the reader into the life and death struggle of these men trying to get off that tanker as it was going down in a matter of minutes. And who were these guys? They were North Enders. They came from the North End of Halifax. They were uh, itinerant merchant sailors looking through the papers. Guys like Jimmy White, who was young, uh, 18 years old, um, had no experience except um, he watched some of the old salts uh, line up and, and copycatted them when the, the guy who was the onshore fixer looking for guys to go onto the Frederick S. Fales um, put up their hands and said, ready, I ready. He did the same and got aboard as, you know, like a second cook or a mess boy. These guys had a passion to go to sea. Obviously, they come through the Depression with no work and no income at all. Right. And the chance to go to sea and make money, albeit just 45 bucks a month, um, was really the, the objective. And then once they get to sea, they realize the peril and they realize the danger, and yet they go back again and again and again. I came across stories in the memoirs of so many different sailors, merchant sailors, who went to sea and were torpedoed once, twice, three times, and survived, and yet went back. That's the amazing part of that, that ethos of being at sea as a merchant mariner. And by the end of the war, uh, at the end of the war, Canada had one of the largest navies in the world at the time. But at the start of the war, 1939, when the Battle of the Atlantic uh, begins... We were far from that, Ted. We had 13 warships, Rob. 13 to protect three coasts, essentially. I mean, obviously, the Pacific and the Atlantic are the most important. But what happens in that moment of the beginning of the war is, first we borrow, um, you know, destroyers and corvettes and minesweepers. And then we begin, because of C.D. Howe and his ministry, realizing the vast... Uh, necessity and this massive plan of, of building corvettes. They built something like 400 corvettes uh, in Britain and in Canada to supply the, the escorts for those those convoys. And so the the the, the shipyards along the eastern uh, Canadian coast 
off in Vancouver and along the Great Lakes, um, grinding out these Corvettes, such that by the end of the war, we'd gone from 13 fighting ships to 400, and we're the fourth largest navy in the world. So what turned the tide, though, wasn't just about building up those resources. That was crucial. But, you know, these, these German U-boats that were just basically seen as, you know, death lurking below, they were a constant and a big threat. How did we finally overcome that? Well, it really was a war of attrition. It was kind of tit for tat. The Germans went from lone wolf attacks to the wolf packs. Mm-hmm. The Allies begin to use ASDIC, which is the primitive sonar, uh, better and better, and then get better devices than those. Things such as hedgehogs, instead of dropping depth charges sort of blindly off the sterns of the ships, they're now propelling these things in the latter stages of the war, the latter stages of the battle, in the air ahead of the corvettes to get the U-boats. The U-boats come up with acoustic torpedoes, which will target the propellers of the warships. The Canadians come up with an anti-torpedo device that throws a a noisemaker off the stern of the ships to attract the torpedoes away from the ships. It went back and forth and back and forth. But one of the critical moments is a political decision by Winston Churchill in late 1942 with the statistics indicating horrific losses. I mean, almost to the point that the Allies could not build it enough ships fast enough to outrun the ones that were sinking. Um, And Churchill is so distressed, he pulls the Canadians off the North Atlantic. Literally, uh, none of them are there in in January. And and the convoys suffer even worse losses. And the Canadians come to Britain, they get their ships refitted with the most modern equipment, their crews are retrained, they're then thrown into the Mediterranean to become part of Operation Torch, which was the operation that gets troops to uh, North Africa. And what happens in the Mediterranean? The Canadians suddenly thrown in more controllable conditions, shallower waters, better equipment. They sink three U-boats in one month. Wow. And then within months, they're back on the North Atlantic. And by May of 1943, the U-boats are running, are broken up. The packs are broken up because the skill of the Canadians, the trust in the Canadians, and, and the determination of them turns the tide in all those respects. And it's one of those situations where there, there's no winning this war if we don't prevail here in the Atlantic. Yeah, Richard Holmes, um, a, a British historian whom I've read a good deal of, I was listening to a, 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 a lecture he gave many years ago, and he said, first you win at sea, and then you can hope to win on land. And this is a certain, uh, certainly the, the evidence of that fact. Absolutely. Well, such an important uh, story about this war. But again, I mean, you know, it's hard to pinpoint the anniversary when you're talking about a battle that lasted uh, over 2,000 days. And we lost a lot of Canadian lives at sea, didn't we? We did. Um, The Merchant Navy lost uh, in excess of 1,300. Um, The Royal Canadian Navy, um, we lost 24 ships. The Air Force lost nearly 800 aircrew. That's the other thing that we forget about. The, the, the greatest danger to the convoys was in the middle of the Atlantic in an area called the Black Gap. It was the area where aircraft coming from the North American coastline, Iceland and the British Isles, could not go beyond, else their aircraft would fall into the sea running out of fuel. And in that Black Gap, the U-boats had free reign for about a thousand miles initially in the war until the Allies and many of the Canadians who devised means for extending the air cover over that black cap more and more and more through the war turned the tide in the air. And in that that, uh, aspect of the war, lives lost uh, through bad weather, through miscalculation, being shot down because the the U-boats are told to stay on the surface and shoot at the aircraft that are attacking them from the sky. So, I mean, it, it just went back and forth and the losses 
were incredible. Um, but if probably the merchant navy was the most dangerous. One of the statistics I discovered was if you were in the Air Force, you had a one in 16 chance of dying or becoming a casualty. If you were in the Army, a one in 32 chance of becoming a casualty. In the Navy, one in 42 chance. If you were in the Merchant Navy, a one in eight chance of becoming a casualty. So the rates were very, very high. Indeed they were. Well, the book is called Battle of the Atlantic Gauntlet to Victory. And uh, Ted has mentioned, so you're going to be uh, out in uh, Arnica of the Woods here on Saturday. You're speaking at the, uh, the Bomber Museum in Nanton. I fly out tomorrow. Um, I was going to be traveling with my buddy David O'Keefe, whom you know and have talked yes. to on your show many times. He got a call to do a, a television shoot. He's one of those really active TV hosts, so they suddenly called him and he's off to a shoot. So they've asked me to do a second speech on Friday night at the museum in Nanton. So I'll do my great escape talk there, the one that uh, dispels the, the rumor that Steve McQueen was the hero of the great escape in 1944. Okay. <laughs> but it'll be a pleasure to be there, be back many ways back home for me in Alberta, and to see uh, lots of uh, folks in Nanton who support that fabulous museum there, one of the best in the world. Absolutely. All right, so you go Friday night and Saturday afternoon, Ted Barris at the uh, Bomber Command Museum in Nanton. Again, the book is called Battle of the Atlantic, your 20th, Ted. Thanks again for joining us here this afternoon. Really appreciate a it. A pleasure. Thanks for having me. All the best, Ted. Take care. Uh, that's uh, author and historian Ted Barris. His latest is 20th book, in fact, Battle of the Atlantic Gauntlet to Victory, telling the story of really these 2,000 days of the pivotal Battle of the Atlantic, which uh, more than 4,000 Canadian lives were lost, but turned the tide ultimately in World War II. Look, obviously, we have issues in Canada related to uh, gun laws, gun policy, and legitimate debates and conversations about... You know, what's the best approach right now, as you've been uh, probably hearing in the news this week, there's some difference of opinion between the Alberta government and the federal government over how and who should administer this gun buyback program uh, that's going along with the government's uh, ban on so-called assault style weapons. So we've got issues here, but it feels like the debate, just the overall gun culture in this country uh, is like night and day compared to what it is in the United States. Maybe some of that does spill over here to some extent. I know Canadians uh, certainly follow a lot of those debates and conversations. So what's different and unique about the debate in the United States? Why is gun culture itself so different in the United States? I mean, part of the story is an organization like the NRA that is extremely influential and powerful. There's not really an equivalent in Canada. There's a new book looking at uh, the debate, the gun culture in the U.S., the impact and the role of the NRA specifically, uh, as told by a Canadian who's uh, chronicled uh, the situation in the U.S. and uh, written about it in his new book. It's called On Target, Gun Culture, Storytelling in the NRA. Noah Schwartz, Assistant Professor of Political Science at the University of the Fraser Valley and the author of uh, On Target, joins us on the line here this afternoon. Professor Schwartz, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Thank you so much for having me back. Right. And I think, you know, there, there are some parallels at some level between the kinds of debates we have, maybe, you know, the, the two sides in the debate, those who want more uh, gun control, those who want less. But there's some big, big differences between Canada and the U.S. at the same time. What, what do you see as, first of all, those, those differences? No, that's for sure. I think the, the gap between people who would see themselves as pro-gun and people who would see themselves as more pro-control is much narrower in Canada than it is the United States. Uh, a lot of policy issues in the U.S., we see a much bigger gap between uh, the pro-gun side, who tend to be fairly um, fairly ardent, fairly hardcore believers, uh, and the pro-control side. Whereas in Canada, there's a lot more agreement that, you know, in general, even amongst uh, gun owners, most gun owners think 
that licensing is a good thing, for example, that safe storage laws are a good thing. You don't see that same consensus in the United States. I see a parallel, too. I mean, you know, there's a very powerful evangelical movement in the U.S., and I think that's why the abortion debate is so different. Obviously, when it comes to the gun debate, you have the NRA in the U.S., the National Rifle Association. We don't really have an equivalent in Canada. To what extent is the NRA a factor in why the debate and gun culture itself is so different in the U.S.? Yeah, so the NRA is a big player, not just uh, at a lobbying level, but in terms of their influence on American gun culture. Uh, So most people don't know, but the National Rifle Association has been around for a lot longer uh, than many people think, since the late 1800s, after the American Civil War. And their original purpose was actually um, to teach firearm safety and to promote the shooting sports. They realized after the Civil War that most Americans weren't actually very good at shooting. So the NRA's goal was to actually teach Americans to shoot um, so that they would be ready for the next war. Uh, the NRA continues this sort of legacy of teaching firearm safety classes. Uh, they publish uh, magazines that reach millions of Americans every year. They teach millions of Americans these classes. Um, and they also had, for a short period, their own online television network. So they have a lot of communications at their, uh, communication methods at their disposal to talk to gun owners in the United States and to uh, convince them to become politically active on this issue. Well, and I mean, to what extent, you kind of alluded to it, but I do wonder, I mean, did the NRA shape the gun culture, or did the gun culture shape the NRA? Yeah, it's, it's always hard to say. It's sort of a chicken and the egg situation, but yeah. we've traced the influence of the NRA on, on the American gun culture uh, in terms of things like talking points. If you ask most uh, Canadians what guns mean to them, um, and I did this in my research, uh, most Canadians will say guns mean uh, to them, when they think of guns, they think about recreation. They think about time spent with friends and family. They think about responsibility. Uh, when I ask that same question in the United States, the first thing that people usually say is freedom, liberty. Um, and the NRA has been a big part of forging that connection, um, this idea uh, that, that guns are, are to the American story, to American independence, uh, and to, to maintaining American freedom. Right. And now certainly, I mean, you know, there, there is that component in the U.S. Constitution and, and you know, the, the contentious Second Amendment. What does it actually mean? What kind of rights does that guarantee? That debate continues. And even there's been some recent court cases in the U.S. that have shaped that further. So why has that become such an important narrative in, in this conversation in the U.S.? Yeah, it's interesting that, you know, we bring up the Second Amendment because I think we have a tendency to project the current debate back in history. Um, but if we, we look at uh, the 1930s, 40s, and 50s, the, the Second Amendment was was called the Forgotten Amendment. Um, most people didn't think about it, and uh, and when they did, they, they thought about it in relation to a militia. So the court cases, the big Supreme Court cases from that time period, thought about the Second Amendment in terms of belonging to a militia, right? A well-regulated militia. Um, it was only actually fairly recently uh, that the courts definitively interpreted the Second Amendment as protecting an individual's right. To gun ownership for self-defense. Uh, this was in the early 2000s, actually. Um, and advocacy groups in the U.S., like the NRA, were a big part of that push um, to have that recognized as an individual right rather than sort of the collective right to participate in a militia. So how has that changed the debate? Because it feels like, um, you know, the, the NRA's side, I guess if we can paint it in, in sort of simplistic terms like that, the NRA's side is winning, is, is prevailing. Is that fair to say? No, I think we've seen um, big wins in their coalition. Um, for example, concealed carry 
uh, in the 1970s and 80s, very, very few states had uh, what we call shall-issue concealed carry laws. Um, so people, uh, it, was, it was much harder to carry a gun in the United States back in the 70s and 80s. Since then, we've seen this movement with more and more states moving towards looser restrictions on gun carry. And even more recently, a movement for states to get rid of all sort of uh, restrictions other than age-based restrictions uh, on carrying a gun. So more Americans are actually carrying concealed weapons now than at any time in the country's history. But there's also another side to it. And, and you know, you, you introduce readers in the book to, you know, some, some people who sort of challenge some of these stereotypes. You know, there is that stereotype of the hyper-political American gun nut, and, and Canadians have a caricature in their heads of that. But the reality is, is a little more complex. So how much of this involves, you know, people who do challenge those stereotypes or people who are simply gun enthusiasts as opposed to maybe what we would characterize as, as gun nuts? Yeah, no, I think that's a really good point, and I'm really happy you brought that out from the book because I, I think the strength of the book, a lot of Canadians really don't understand the American gun debate. We don't understand why people in the United States would be so attached to firearms ownership when, you know, on a daily basis, we kind of see the the consequence that every day I'm getting a notification on my phone about another shooting in the U.S. Um, so what I try to do in the book is to understand that, you know, why do so many Americans, why are they so attached to guns? Um, and the key to that is to what guns mean to people. Um, so I think that's really the strength of the book is, is that it helps to explain. If, if people really want to understand what's going on, uh, the book is going to help them to do that. To what extent does this affect uh, Canadians or the Canadian debate. I mean, you know, we're, I think Canadians are familiar with, um, you know, some elements of the debate. We see how a lot of these debates unfold in, in the U.S. Do you think it, does it affect the conversation here at all, either in, you know, I think to some extent, maybe it, it hurts the cause of maybe the NRA equivalent here because we sort of associate that side with, you know, that side of the American debate. No, definitely. And in my research on Canadian gun owners, uh, one thing that comes up again on and again is that frustration being sort of labeled with the same the same label as American gun owners in that sense. So I think it definitely influences the debate here. I think um, it's very useful for, for politicians uh, to play off of. So, for example, the Trudeau government has been, been really effective at um, using what's going on in the United States uh, in their politics to try to win points at home. Mm -hmm. uh, we saw this, for example, after uh, the, the abortion issue in the United States came up again. Um, we saw this after the shooting in Uvalde, Texas when he announced the freeze on handgun ownership. Um, so I think it definitely plays hugely into the Canadian debate. But then on the other level, on the policy level, the failure of the U.S. Uh, to sort of stop the proliferation of illegal guns influences Canada directly because that's where a lot of our crime guns are coming from. Same thing in Mexico. Many, most of the crime guns in Mexico are coming from the U.S. Um, so we see on, on a big impact on both the policy level and the political level in Canada. I mean, at the same time, there's been a lot of focus on the NRA and, you know, they've had some legal setbacks. You know, there's there's been a lot of maybe not quite chaos within NRA leadership, but there have been some issues. Does any of that affect the NRA's influence? Is is it waning? Are, are Americans maybe starting to rethink, you know, this organization, why it has such influence? Yeah, no, I think we've definitely seen in the last couple of years the NRA's influence has taken a hit. Um, and there's a lot of gun owners who are now gravitating. Uh, we can see this sort of looking at, at online debates and things like the membership. They're gravitating towards sort of new upstart organizations, groups like uh, gun, owners, gun Owners of America, the Firearms Policy Coalition, uh, groups like this. Um, and I think uh, 
on, on the one hand, there's this uh, belief that if we can sort of get rid of the NRA, um, then, you know, it would pave the way for gun reform in the United States. Um, I think what we what I show effectively in the book uh, is that the NRA's influence is tied to this community of gun owners that it's helped to create. Um, and that this community, even if the NRA were to cease to exist, this community's been created, it's there, and it's not going anywhere. Um, so I think uh, I think even if the NRA's influence wanes, uh, there's going to be they're willing to sort of step into the void um, that actually might be less willing to compromise than the NRA. I know we don't really think about the NRA in compromise, mm-hmm. but when Trump, for example, brought in the ban on bump stocks after the Las Vegas shooting, uh, the NRA was fairly quick to, to roll over and play ball, um, which angered a lot of these smaller upstart groups that are a little bit more, more even more extreme. Very interesting. Well, the book is called On Target, Gun Culture, Storytelling in the NRA. Noah Schwartz, thank you so much for joining us here this afternoon. Appreciate the conversation. Thank you for having me on. All the best. Uh, that's uh, Noah Schwartz, assistant professor, political science, University of Fraser Valley. As mentioned, the book is called On Target, Gun Culture Storytelling in the NRA. Like I say, I mean, there's some similarities between the debate in Canada and the debate in the U.S., but I, I think at a fundamental level, it's, it's much, much different in the U.S. It does have a spillover effect, and, and in, in a weird way. And again, I think it's similar to the abortion issue. The more that the anti-abortion movement achieves in the U.S., uh, the less likely it is uh, that their, their compatriots in Canada will, will have any success. When abortion gets banned in U.S. states, that makes people in Canada, I think, more pro-choice. The more the NRA achieves in the United States, I think it plays into the hands of pro-gun control forces in Canada. So, yes, I think the NRA does a disservice to their equivalence in, in Canada. I think that's the connection between you know, what Canadians see in the debate in the U.S. and how it affects us here. Obviously, you know, what happens with guns in the U.S. is a big factor here. You know, guns on the streets in Canada, in our cities, are being smuggled in illegally from the United States. So, yeah, in that sense, you know, what happens with guns and gun policy in the U.S. does have an effect here. Anyway, your thoughts on all of that? Obviously, as mentioned at the outset, we do have an ongoing issue here in Alberta, in Canada. The government's plans to ban so-called assault-style weapons, I think, as our guest pointed to, you know, politically trying to capitalize on, on some of those uh, American political conversations, coming up with policy that maybe doesn't necessarily make sense in Canada. And the Alberta government's pushed back against that. Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcast. You can also find me on Twitter at Rob Breckenridge. You can email me, rob at 770chqr.com. Talk to you next time.